Welcome to a place where we combine equal parts science, technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Then we gradually stir in magic to the mixture, and you have the Perception Podcast. Join us in conversations with design heroes, inspirational thinkers, business leaders, and trailblazers across the globe. Today on the Perception Podcast is David Kirby. David Kirby is chair of the Department of Interdisciplinary Studies in the Liberal Arts and director of the Science, Technology, and Society program at Cal Poly University in San Luis Obispo. He was a practicing evolutionary geneticist before leaving bench science to explore science communication through entertainment media. His experiences as a member of the scientific community have informed his internationally recognized studies into the interactions between science, technology, and fiction. His book, Lab Coats in Hollywood, Science, Scientists, and Cinema, examines the historic collaborations between science consultants and the entertainment industry. He is currently writing a book titled Indecent Science, Religion, Science, and Movie Censorship, which will explore how movies served as a battleground over science's role in influencing morality. So let's take a deep dive into the science of sci-fi cinema with David Kirby. David Kirby, welcome to the Perception Podcast. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. So why don't we get started with uh, with a little bit of your backstory? Maybe you can give us uh, some of your history and how you ended up at uh, Cal Poly University. Yeah, well, I, I have a, I think, a somewhat interesting background uh, in that I got my PhD in the field of molecular evolutionary genetics, so uh, a hard science, a bench science, and I was teaching at American University in Washington, D.C. for a while uh, and, you know, loved science, uh, but wasn't too (laughs) fond of doing science any longer. So I decided to switch fields and uh, the National Science Foundation has some grants for scientists to switch out of the hard sciences into either humanities, social science uh, type research. I was very interested in media and science and that intersection. Uh, So then I went to Cornell to do this uh, retraining postdoc. And there I got interested in, you know, uh, science communication, but science communication through entertainment media. So, you know, the ways in which science is communicated through movies, television, video games, uh, and really what I wanted to do, sort of my goal was to, you know, take the idea of science communicated through entertainment media seriously, right? Not just through sort of depictions and things like that, but that it can actually be communicated. Uh, Finished my postdoc there and uh, got a job over in Europe in Manchester, UK at the University of Manchester for 15 years. Uh, Wrote my book, Lab Coats in Hollywood there. Uh, Working in Europe, great in many ways, but uh, saw an opportunity to come back home when uh, someone from Cal Poly contacted me and said, hey, do you want to be chair of this brand new department we have uh, of interdisciplinary studies? And so I thought that was a great opportunity. Got to move back to where family lives. Uh, Yeah, that's how I ended up there. Awesome. So how did you first become interested in the intersection of science and cinema? Uh, Well, when I was at American University, a movie came out called Gattaca, mm-hmm. uh, where 
Gattaca was about a sort of future world where um, your genetics sort of determined, you know, what it was that you could do in the world. So genetic engineering of humans had become a reality. Uh, and so people's places in society were dictated by their genomes. And, you know, since I was an evolutionary geneticist by training and, you know, I'd been teaching about that sort of notion of human genetic engineering and eugenics, uh, I wrote a, a couple of articles about that sort of overlap, that that intersection. And in particular, uh, one of the articles I wrote was sort of a, a bioethics exploration of Gattaca um, showing how it addressed specific bioethical concerns with uh, human genetic engineering. And ultimately, you know, what I found with Gattaca was, you know, the, the film wasn't saying that the technology was bad or wrong. Um, it was really, if we took the underlying sort of ideology of genetic determina uh, determinism as true, that was the problem. Um, and that sort of, you know, wet my, my beak a little bit for this sort of science cinema type of analysis, especially from a science communication perspective. And I thought, well, if I want to do this seriously, uh, I better get some training, uh, you know, in the methods of, you know, both film analysis and some of the more sociological elements. So just to go back to, I guess, your younger years, did you grow up a sci-fi fan? Were you into movies, comic books? Give us a little bit. Uh, oh, yeah. Loved, childhood, uh, I guess. Yeah. Love movies. Um I mean, this is you know one of the major reasons why I made the that switch. You know, when I when I switched from you know the the bench science to doing the more science communication, science technology studies work, you know, everyone was like, well, why don't you do why don't you do a project that's based on what you know, you know, genetics, um, that sort of thing. But I loved movies, always loved movies, and so I really wanted to do something associated with movies, and figured if I'm making this switch, I'm going to be doing what I want to do. Um, so yeah, growing up as a kid, I loved uh, science fiction stories, not you know novels, but also science fiction movies and especially horror movies. Um, you know, especially those sort of B horror movies of the fifties. Mm -hmm. And growing up as a kid in Chicago uh, on Saturdays, you had you know master horror chiller thriller theater. Um, yep. With the host Son of Svenguli. Uh so me and my brothers on Saturday afternoons, you know, we'd we'd watch those horror movies together. Uh, and so, yeah, having an opportunity to do something movie related uh, was kind of a dream come true. Nice. So in your book, you discuss how scientists have been portrayed in movies throughout history. Um, yeah. What are some of the most common stereotypes that you've noticed? Yeah, it's funny. You, you have um, changing stereotypes uh, over the course of the, the history of, of science and movies. So you know, the, the sort of traditional stereotype is the, the mad scientist, right? The scientist mm -hmm. who's, um, you know, trying to seek knowledge uh, with a sort of tinge of evil, right? They're they're willing to do anything to get that knowledge. You're not sure what they'll do with that knowledge once they get it. Uh, but that stereotype is really more of uh, one from sort of the early days of Hollywood cinema, something you see in, in the 30s and, and, and the 40s. Um, you know, going into the 50s and the 60s, you get a, a new type of stereotype, uh, you know, sort of nutty professor type, right? That's mm -hmm. exemplified by uh, the film, The uh, Nutty Professor, um, sort of a, a scientist who is very smart, uh, but they don't 
have the sort of social skills that um, you know most people have, right? And it's also tied into uh, a, a stereotype like the absent-minded professor, mm-hmm. right? The the scientist who's right. so you know they're thinking all the time uh, about science, and so you know they don't forget to put their uh, pants on, right? That that type of thing. Uh, so you get a lot of that, you know, happening in the fifties uh, and the sixties. Uh, you also in the sixties get uh, what you know what's referred to as sort of the amoral scientist, right? Sort of emerging out of the uh, Manhattan Project, the, the the scientist who is not good, is not bad, but just wants to know. Um, so the scientist who you know, understanding that, hey, setting off an atomic bomb might actually destroy the entire world, but they just want to know, will it will it work? Um, so you get that type of scientist. Um, the most uh, recent, so the newest scientist stereotype uh, is the idea of the nerd, right? So most people don't, you know, realize that the nerd as a character, it only emerges in, in the 1980s, right? This sort of, uh, based on you know, so computer scientists, the geek in the in the in the basement, um, always working on the computer, also lacks sort of you know social skills. But the most common stereotype actually that you get nowadays in movies is the hero scientist. Mm-hmm. So the scientist who is not just intellectually superior, but often also physically superior uh, to everyone else. The scientist can all solve lots of problems uh, on the screen. Uh, in some ways, you know, well, in many ways, that's actually a good change uh, for scientists, but it's also still a stereotype and it can actually cause problems of its own, right? If, if people have a view of science that it's infallible, that's actually not a good thing as we saw with the COVID um, pandemic, right? People expecting scientists to know the answers instantly. And if, mm-hmm. you know, as the scientific process moves along, you get things wrong. You're blaming scientists um, for having the wrong answers. So what do you think is the most accurate or realistic portrayal of science that you have seen in a movie? What are some of the movies that you think get get it right? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I'm always uh, an advocate of the movie Contact. Um, it's based on mm-hmm. the Carl Sagan novel uh, with Jodie Foster um, and what what I like about it, I mean, you know, again, going back to a little bit of this, you know, she's um, kind of a super scientist in, in many ways, um, but she does have some flaws. And it, it also shows the sort of problems that real scientists have um, when they're, you know, trying to make discoveries. Uh, there was a recent film called Arrival mm-hmm. that I also really love. Um, Again, showing, uh, you know, the different ways in which we can uh, try and find knowledge. Um, And I especially love the way in which the movie, you know, ties in its sort of notions of linguistics and physics together to the to the drama itself. Right. Mm -hmm. That it's about notions of memories and and the past. And would we want to to relive the past if we could or change things? so there's certainly that, but you know, if you look at the last seven, eight years, those space films, Interstellar, mm-hmm. uh, The Martian, Gravity, um, all have a lot of accurate science 
um, especially The Martian and uh, Interstellar. Um, all three of those films had scientific support, but The Martian and Interstellar had mega scientific support. Uh, and so, you, you know, that really does show on the screen. So how do you think the advance, advancements in technology and special effects have changed the way science is depicted in movies over time? Yeah, I, I you know, when, when I started writing the book and thinking about scientists working as consultants, I mean, one of the things I sort of identified is what I call the sort of post-Jurassic Park phenomena, that hmm. Jurassic Park was amazingly uh, successful as a movie, and, you know, Hollywood's a copycat culture. And so, you know, filmmakers are like, well, how do we tap into that? And one of the things that made it successful was its realism. But it actually had two types of realism, right? It had the technological realism, right? Those dinosaurs, you know, they looked real, or as we would say, perceptually real. But it also had a scientific realism, right? Steven Spielberg brought in a lot of, you know, a lot of paleontologists to help with the, the ways in which the dinosaurs would move and act and talking about their behavior. And so when filmmakers went to replicate it, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't tear the two apart. They sort of conflated the scientific realism with the technical realism. Um, and so the more that technologies got real, the more they wanted the science in the movies to be equally real. And also, you know, as technology got better, audiences, you know, they're, they're, they're sophisticated. I mean, we often, you know, look at some dumb blockbusters and say, oh God, audiences want this, the stupidest things, mm -hmm. but they're actually pretty sophisticated. And so, you know, they want their stories to be as real as the images. So you get the rise of uh, a sort of real science realism throughout the 2000s, you know, up till today, that you know was needed to match the realism of the images they saw on screen. One of my uh, one of my favorite um, visionaries in television history uh, is Kenneth Johnson, and uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but you know his shows. He was responsible for Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman, and of course the greatest show ever, The Incredible Hulk, with Bill <laughs> Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. He then went on to do V and Alienation and so forth. But he always tells. A story uh, when he was coming up, uh, George Burns, the famous comedian, uh, told him that if you're going to tell a lie, make sure you surround it with as much truth as possible. And in his shows, he obviously was pushing <laughs> the limits of of of, uh, of what was real and and not, but he would surround it with such technical jargon and beakers and test tubes, and you know, in the '70s, you know, every wall was like computer lights blinking you know in these in these rooms when when you see uh, uh shows or films like that do you cringe or do you do you appreciate what they're trying to do with giving it a, a foundation of science but obviously going beyond uh into the science fiction oh yeah no absolutely i love those types i mean when i was a kid the, the incredible hulk was actually my my favorite show um and yeah oh, love boy you know yeah the show ever. podcast now <laughs> yeah you and jeremy are gonna have a separate podcast about that one i'm not involved with that one <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah we could talk that's about one that scientist about... i do not want to get angry by the way <laughs> <laughs> yeah we wouldn't like you when you're angry just like that's right <laughs> yep yep um but yeah no i i love those those types of shows and, and those types of movies i mean some you know some people say well you know you're allowed sort of one um 
made up thing in, in your movie. Um, you can get away with that. And if, you know, if the rest of it's accurate, um, th then that that's okay. Uh, I mean, I think that's fine. Um, I, I think the idea is that you want to tell a, a good story, an interesting story, right? Mm -hmm. So um, as with the in Incredible Hulk, right? It, you're never going to make that, you know, totally accurate. You have to go with the idea that um, this human turns into this gigantic green, you know, invincible beast. But you're doing that because you want to tell a story about, mm -hmm. you know, repressed anger or heroism and, and mm -hmm. you know, the sort of um, hero in all of us, all, all that sort of stuff. And you can only the do inner that strength with, that we all have, but few of us can tap into. Yeah, exactly, and you you can you you can you can only do that when you have that type of you know fiction that you're you're willing to buy into, um, and so I'm not I never get um, unhappy, you know, if people are are making up science in order to tell a really good story. Now, of course, there are times where you know you don't want people to make up science in ways that can be dangerous, mm -hmm. um, like things like medicine, um, you know things having to do with genetics, anything like that. You know, you don't want people thinking that might be uh, real. But yeah, in general, um, yeah, I was told, you know, when I was interviewing a scientist about a, a film where they had to send a, a manned uh, mission, uh, you know, to, to do something with the sun. And the scientists just kept telling them, this is unrealistic. Why would you send them a manned mission? You know, just send a drones. You know, you don't need to. And the filmmakers finally told them, "Well, look, that's the story, right? That's the human element. You know, that mm -hmm. we that we need that thing to happen." Um, and that's true for a lot of the stories that are told, right? It, it requires a, a human element, or it might require something to be, you know, totally inaccurate, but that's needed to make the story dramatic, or interesting, or you know, to bring the, the audience in emotionally. Right, because sometimes when you make the science too accurate, it doesn't make for good cinema. I know you you wrote about the Andromeda strain and uh, and that, you know, these micrometers that they're going up, you know, yeah. in, in increments at a time, is, it can be a little slow and arduous for an audience, even though it is real. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, I, I, I talk to people, you know, creators and producers for forensic television shows uh, for for another project, and yeah, the the time factor you have to you know you, you don't want the audience bored, um, and so you you have to in some cases yeah ignore the science to move things along, um, or yeah, science itself can you know if you're watching it can be kind of boring, uh, so yeah, you need things to make it exciting, you know, for the audience. They're they're not there to learn science even if they might learn some science or get interested in the science they're, they're there to be entertained yeah i mean you bring up a excellent point you know when we first worked on our, our on i guess a, the biggest project at the time with marvel was iron man 2 and we got an opportunity to work on uh, tony stark's tech and when we were designing it you know we, we were coming up with some very futuristic designs and john favreau and the and the team at marvel were like well let's not make this 10 years into the future let's make it like five so it's believable and people think like, oh, wow, that could actually, you know, that could actually work. So we've kept that, you know, bit of knowledge in the back of our brains for every single project now moving forward with them. And it's worked out really well because that's actually what attracts the technology companies to us because they'll see it and be like, ah, we're actually working on something like that. Um, and we'd like for you guys to help us uh, make it look just as cool as uh, Tony Stark's tech. 
So it's something that um, I think really, um, well, definitely attracts, um, you know, uh, all different types of clients, but, you know, made a big impact on, on the way we think, you know, and when we're working on these projects, are there any specific scientists or science advisors that you um, think have had a particularly big impact in the way um, science is portrayed in movies? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly uh, the the guy who worked on Jurassic Park, Jack Horner, um, right. you know, again, I, I was thinking of sort of pre-Jurassic Park, post-Jurassic Park uh, era. You know, he did a lot of work uh, on the film trying to make those dinosaurs realistic, but also there was a lot of uh, media coverage surrounding it as well, sort of making people understand that this scientist was involved uh, in making these different types of things. Uh, there's also a scientist called John Underkoffler who worked on Minority Report. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And Minority Report itself, I think, is a, a sort of was a major sort of breakthrough for the ways in which scientists were used on movies, but also, like you were saying, the ways in which technologies uh, were portrayed. Um, I mean, as humans, it it is it's hard for us to, you know to imagine the future, right? Uh, and so, if you say something's fifty years in the future, you know it's still going to look like today for us, maybe just some jetpacks yep. or, or, or something. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, Minority Report, they had to stick with things that were related to contemporary technologies uh, because yeah, anything more than 15 years and people don't, aren't, quite, aren't going to be able to relate to uh, the way mm -hmm. it is. But yeah, yeah, if, John it's not, if it's not grounded in some kind of, um, of scientific or technological facts, then you lose the audience. It has to have something that people can grasp and then move a little bit beyond that into the science fiction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, like the stuff I've seen that, that you guys have done for the Marvel films, mm -hmm. right? It's stuff that people have seen a little bit, but then it moves to that next level where, yeah, it looks like the future, right? But a believable mm -hmm. future because we've mm -hmm. seen something like it, um, but, but now just take it a couple years into the future. Yeah, so Minority Report for sure, um, and John Underkoffler, um, but also I'd say Interstellar, um, mm -hmm. you know, because it was, you know, one scientist's uh, sort of vision, you know, uh, he actually pushed for people to make uh, that particular movie, um, and it, you know, it was based around his scientific theories. Uh, so again, yeah, there was that. And The Martian as well. Mm -hmm. um, James Green from NASA was sort of the main science consultant, but they brought a lot of people from NASA uh, on, on board with it. And it was one of the, you know, NASA's worked on a lot of films, but the thing about The Martian is that they were pushing what they thought NASA missions should be, right? I mean, it really was a glorification of NASA. And the mission, you know, wasn't to save humanity or to do anything it was it was a scientific mission that that they went on and that they they really liked that you know we love the um the the age-old uh, notion that you know science fiction inspires science fact and all the the classic literature like jules verne and hg wells inspiring inventors of the submarine and the and the rocket ship respectively and then of course uh, the star trek communicator device in the 60s inspiring the flip phone and 2001 a space odyssey you see the first ipad how do you yeah. how do you feel about the, the the role of of film and science fiction films inspiring uh, future technologies and science? 
Yeah, I mean, the science fiction films, um, what I like is that they can sort of stimulate desire, right? Mm -hmm. They can put a technology into a context so that people can say, I, I want that, right? They can see the utility of it, the use mm -hmm. of it. Uh, and they can say, yeah, how can we make that happen? Um, and one of the things in my book uh, that I you know, did was to look at scientists who worked on films specifically to try and generate this type of desire. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I came up with a term I call diegetic prototype, you know, diegetic, that's just a, the film scholars word for the fictional world. So it's a prototype within the fictional world, but it's a special prototype, right? Um, unlike your average old, you know, physical prototype, it works, you know, without any problems. People are using it in that fictional world and you could see what they might be using it for. Um, exactly. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's, it's inspiring, not just because it looks cool because of the form factor, but actually it serves a purpose with the characters in a particular scene who have a particular problem that this technology or this science can actually help address. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I, I also refer to them as pre-product placements, mm -hmm. right? So we know what a product placement is. Uh, you know, you want, you put your can of Coke in there and, and hopefully the audience gives them the desire. Oh yeah, I want, I want some Coca-Cola, but through the pre-product placement, right? The only way to get that product is if someone develops that technology. Um, and so they have to support its development to get their, well, gestural interface or whatever the technology might be. I mean, one of my favorite uh, of these diegetic prototypes is actually from the movie Big Hero 6, mm -hmm. right? So Baymax, he's, he's, a, he's, he's a diegetic prototype, right? The roboticist who worked on the film, you know, wanted people to desire having a soft medical personal care robot. Um, and so now there's a Make Baymax Real website that the, the scientists have to try and get the money to Crazy. make Baymax Real. Yeah, it's growing up with uh, with with Kit and Knight Rider, and imagine a, a car that could drive itself yeah. and talk to you. <laughs> yeah, with, exactly. With an AI, like what? How crazy is that? In you know 1980 whatever, and yeah, now yeah. it's 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 more than possible. It's happening and it's here. Yeah, or an Iron Man suit. Exactly. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. Too bad they don't make the Firebird anymore because it's still a cool car. <laughs> That's what Knight Rider That's was. True. Or I should say what Kit was anyway. Trans Am Firebird. Gotta love those old cars. Yeah. Um, so so what do you think was the most accurate or realistic portrayal of science that you've seen in a movie? Do you have like one particular one? You mentioned a bunch, but I'm just curious if there's one that's like was really, really well done for you. Yeah, the, I, I mean, I, I like, like I said, the, the, the sort of space ones, but one that is uh, sort of off the beaten path, as it were, uh, that I really liked, mainly because my PhD was in a similar type of thing, was a Darren Aronofsky film called The Fountain. Mm -hmm. uh, so The Fountain, it Hugh had Jackman, sort of three. Right? Yeah, Hugh Jackman. Yep. Uh, it, it had three parts, right? And um, in one part, he was a, a sort of conquistador looking for the fountain of youth. In the second part, he was a geneticist trying to find a cure for cancer. And the third uh, crazy part, uh, he's kind of a man in the future living in a bubble. <laughs> I can't explain that. I actually, people either love or hate the film. I actually really love the film. But it's that second part where he's uh, a geneticist, a molecular biologist trying to find the cure for cancer. Uh, it was amazingly well done. Um, the lab sets were so realistic, the way the scientists talked to each other, even the ways they were looking in their microscope and what they were showing um, 
yeah, I just found it to be uh, an excellent example of sort of how lab culture can can work as well. Uh, and it wasn't something you would expect uh, in a, uh, a film from Darren Aronofsky, <laughs> uh, basically a film about, you know, trying to find immortality or, you know, overcome death. What about the um, the the ethical questions and and hypothetical scenarios that you uh, you discuss? Are there some examples of that, and why science fiction is well suited for those types of discussions? Yeah, I mean, science fiction. Um, yeah, by by essentially setting uh, it in a particular social context, right? You can get the characters talking about uh, what might be the unforeseen consequences uh, of a particular technology or a particular use uh, of, of science. So, you know, science fiction, you often refer to as speculative fiction. And so through those different types of speculations, right, you can explore some things that you couldn't necessarily explore in the real world, or, you know, maybe we have a real world experiment, but we don't want to go down that route. Mm -hmm. We'd rather see what the potential consequences are first before we can do that. And science fiction definitely allows us um, to do that sort of uh, experimentation at a story level. And if it's done well, right, if you've got someone who's willing to, you know, think through all the particular types of consequences, right, uh, it, you can really do a great job uh, of laying out there what some of the ethical consequences might be either of a science or a technology. So I'm gonna I'm gonna share a story with you about um what you know when I, when I watch movies as a visual effects artist and just owning a studio sometimes it you know it ruins it for me when I'm when I'm watching because I'm like oh man the composite or the tracking's off or whatever it might be so a long time ago I, you guys probably remember the movie called Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger yep. and he's trying to get his daughter back with I think Melissa Milano if I'm not mistaken. And there's this car chase and he's in this Porsche and he's smashing against the mountains and all this stuff's happening. And he basically holds this guy over a cliff and asks him questions and he lets him go. And then he goes back to the Porsche and it's the Porsche. It's an old 911. It's on its side. And, um, you know, he's huge. So he pushes it over and he's about to drive away in it. And as soon as he drives away, the Porsche is in perfect condition, even though two seconds ago it was completely smashed and, you know, riddled with dents. Um, is there something like, is there a big misconception or is there something in movies that you've watched or one in particular you're like, oh man, that, that could never happen or that, that's, that was a mistake. They shouldn't have let that one go through. Yeah. Um, yeah. For me, it's the 10% of your brain myth, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that we, we only use 10% of our, our brains is one that I find really, really problematic. Um, and mainly because you don't need it often when these particular stories are told. Um, like, well, Lucy, the Luc Besson film is kind of one of the worst examples. Um, but I also think, well, I use this when I'm teaching about sort of using science in stories. So um, there was a movie that came out called Limitless, right? Has, with, with Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper, it. yeah. NZT um, was the drug. NZT. Still looking for that pill. Yeah, yeah, where I can get it, let me know. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, he's in the diner and his former brother-in-law or the brother of his ex-girlfriend, I can't remember what, gives him the pill, right? And says, hey, you know, if you, you know, that, you know, you we don't use 10, uh, we only use 10% of our brain, this lets you use all of your brain. And Bradley Cooper's like, well, what, how does it do that? And the guy's like, well, I don't know, it just does it. And 
I always tell my students, I'm like, well, do, did you even need that then, <laughs> right? I mean, the guy's a drug dealer. He should just say, hey, this thing makes you super smart. How does it work? I don't know. I'm right. a drug dealer. <laughs> you know, you mm-hmm. don't need to throw in that that misconception in order for um, the story to move on. And the 10% thing never even comes back, right? Um, so that particular misconception is one that I find very problematic. You write about how uh, science and movies can inspire people to pursue careers in science. And we've worked on both uh, Black Panther films. And there's a lot of uh, of stories of how Shuri in Wakanda is inspiring young girls to get into STEM careers. Um, can you talk more about this and share any personal stories or examples? Yeah, certainly. Um, there's a uh, organization called the Gina Davis Foundation that you, you might be familiar with uh, that you know, Gina Davis, the actor, started mm-hmm. this foundation to try and, you know, make it so that, you know, young girls can see different careers on screen in order to sort of pursue them. And she's focused quite a bit on, you know, the STEM sort of careers. And their motto is, if she can see it, she can be it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, this is definitely something that is true for um, science fiction films prior to the 1990s, you didn't see very many female scientists at all, right? So of course, girls aren't going to want to become scientists if they're going to have to, you know, look like Doc Brown, you know, with <laughs> frizzy hair, you know, type of thing. That's not going to be appealing to them. <laughs> but nowadays, um, you'll find lots of uh, female scientists in movies that can give, you know, the girls a sense that, yeah, it's it's, you know, it's good to be like Amy Adams in Arrival or Sandra Bullock uh, in in Gravity or even, you know, in Interstellar, right? Um, Matthew McConaughey is not actually a scientist. He's just a pilot. It's his daughter who is uh, the scientist uh, in the film. So there is a, a lot of research, you know, showing that when girls can see, you know, not just that girls can do science, but that the girls doing the science or the women doing the science are, you know, average people. They're not, you know, crazy, weird, you know, frizzy haired glasses wearing lab coat, you know, besotted people. They're just people um, that that can make them uh, want to go into science or at least see science as a, a viable career. And we'll not forget engineering as well. But you also discuss um, how science and movies can be used as a tool for you know, political messaging and, and or propaganda. Can you talk more about this and give us some examples? Yeah. So because storytelling is, is so powerful, I, you know, I was interested in when I started writing the book, I was interested in sort of what motivated scientists to work on uh, movies. And I found a lot of scientists were motivated to work on movies because they felt uh, a particular issue, you know, required either more scientific um, attention or more political attention or required more funding. Uh, And so they became involved because they wanted to create stories that would, uh, you know, sort of scare the public into supporting what it is that they were concerned about. And I refer to this as the war games effect, right? After the 1983 film, um the idea is you know we use present... the code name whopper for a lot of things here from that movie <laughs> oh good <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> yeah, it, it's a great film. And, and, and yep. the message is, hey, we need to pay attention to, you know, to the ways in which we're dealing with our artificial intelligence uh, in order to prevent future disaster. So movies like, well, uh, being one, Outbreak uh, before that, uh, or, you know, Twister, The Day After Tomorrow, right? The, the scientists working on those films were trying to sort of warn humanity, look what can happen if we don't pay attention to this issue. Um, I, I, I like to think of it as they're working as the ghost of Christmas future, right? Like, like in the Dickens novel, Christmas Carol. So the idea is I'm going to show you uh, a horrible future, but I'm also gonna tell you that you have the capacity to stop that future from becoming a, a real possibility if you act now, right? If you pay attention to emer emerging viruses um, or the threat of global warming or whatever the case might be. Uh, so yeah, a lot of scientists saw this as a sort of great opportunity um, to tell a story that might frighten people into taking action. David, I, I just want to tell you how much I enjoyed your book, Lab Coats in Hollywood. You know, I, I stumbled on it actually pretty recently when I was putting together a presentation, but uh, uh, your, your, your expertise and your subject matter is so near and dear to our hearts. It's just a pleasure uh, talking to you. What do you hope uh, readers take away from your book and what impact do you hope it will have on the way people think about science and cinema? Yeah, so I, I usually have uh, sort of two uh, things that I'm hoping people take away from it. Um, one is that, you know, scientists working on these films can can make an impact, right? They can, you know, help filmmakers to tell a better story using science, right? That they're, they're not there to, you know, be the sort of uh, science police to keep telling the filmmakers no. They're there to, you know, help the, help the filmmakers utilize science in telling a better story. Uh, but the second thing is also to understand that, well, you know, scientists are scientific experts, but filmmakers, they're what I call entertainment experts, right? So there are reasons why, you know, films can't be 100% accurate all the time. Uh, there's always going to be constraints and the filmmakers know what these constraints are. And certainly some filmmakers uh, like a Steven Spielberg or James Cameron, they're willing to put a lot of work in to try and overcome those constraints. But there are other potential, you know, other filmmakers who, you know, may not be willing to put that sort of work in um, and not want to try and overcome certain constraints. Um, but yeah, so those are the two things. Scientists can help make films good by using science, but also you know, we, we can't expect the films to be 100% accurate uh, because there are always filmmaking constraints. So how do you see the relationship between science and cinema evolving in the future? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I see it being, continuing to be sort of symbiotic. Um, and, you know, I think that, <clears throat> well, there's a, an organization called the Science and Entertainment Exchange run by the National Academy of Sciences mm -hmm. that um, has grown over the last 10 years. They're getting a lot of scientists involved in in making movies and TV shows um, and computer games. And I think it's it's getting more symbiotic because filmmakers realize, you know, that working with scientists is, is you know, it's it's not a bad thing. Yeah, and I'll just it, interrupt. I, I, Marvel has worked with that uh, group before they've mentioned it to us. And we actually interviewed uh, Brian Green, who's a professor at Columbia, 
uh, math and physics, and uh, he was a consultant on Ant Man and the quantum realm. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. They they've um, yeah. I mean, as you guys know, I mean, Marvel has been uh, from the beginning, you know, wanting their films to have scientific grounding. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's yep. it's sort of amazing, uh, given that a lot of those comic book heroes their origins have a sort of supernatural element, a, a mystical element. Yeah, it um, seems like half of them are are cosmic or supernatural, but the other half are born in a lab, like yeah. David Banner, like, uh, you know, Wolverine or uh, Iron Man. There is a lot of them that are, uh, are scientifically or scientist-based. Yeah, but with the movies, you know, Doctor Strange and, and Thor, they've made them yeah. scientific, right? They've given them yeah. a scientific sort mm-hmm. of... Uh, explanation which i think is is great it grounds everything in um you know a realism that people can you know attach themselves to even if we know again that you know you can never really have a a hope or there's no thor living on some distant planet at least you could sort of buy into it during the time it is that you're sitting in the seat watching those uh films and and that's sort of you know yeah that's that's what you want uh and so you know, when you have the case of, you know, science, or comic book films really digging hard into the science. Yeah, I think it's it's sort of here to stay that 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 um, synergy between science and cinema. This a famous line, sorry, uh, from Thor when he's uh, speaking to um, uh, I can't remember her name now. The actress, his yeah, girlfriend, plays his girlfriend. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, it says uh, your ancestors called it magic, but you call it science. I come from yeah. a land where they are one and the same. That's one of our favorite lines. We use that quite yeah. a bit. So, what, I just was going to wrap up, uh, David, with uh, asking you what you're currently working on, and what can readers expect from you in the future. Yeah, good. So, um, at the moment, I'm working on a book uh, that is. It seems really different from Lab Coats in Hollywood, but it's actually an extension. Um, so with Lab Coats in Hollywood, again, one of the things I was interested in, you know, I'm interested in this idea of the stories we tell about science and technology, and then how those stories can impact real world science and technology. And so, you know, who controls these stories and why do they want to control these stories? I shouldn't even say control, influence the stories told about science and technology. And I was doing some work at some point and ran across a story uh, about uh, movie censorship. Uh, so in America from 1930 to 1968, all movies were censored. They were sent to something called the Hayes office and the people at the Hayes office would look at the movie and determine, you know, whether or not changes needed to be made before it could be made into uh, a film. Um, and they normally, you know, the things most people hear about when they hear about that type of censorship is sex, violence, language. But the story I ran across was one having to do with evolution. And I began to think about, well, clearly they thought of other things than just sex violence and language. Um, and so I'm looking at how these sensors approach science and technology. Um, and so again, how are they trying to control the stories told about science in movies? Which stories didn't they want told, right? Or which stories did they want told? What what stories about science did they actually like that they wanted uh, out there? Uh, so yeah, I'm working on a book. It's called Indecent Science, Science, Religion, and Movie Censorship. Sounds awesome. I can't wait to read it. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much, David. It was a real pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks. It's great. Yeah, I love the work that you guys are doing uh, with the Marvel film. So it's, it's, it's great for me to talk to you. Awesome. Thanks again. And that wraps up another episode of the Perception Podcast. As always, send any questions and comments to ask at experienceperception.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our site, experienceperception.com slash contact. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and write a nice review. See you on the next episode. Thank you.